Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched The Grand Budapest Hotel. A writer encounters the owner of an aging, high-class hotel, who tells him of his early years serving as a lobby boy in the hotel's glorious years under an exceptional concierge. This movie makes me happy. This movie was delightful. It is the pinnacle of Wes Anderson delightfulness. Okay, I'll take that. (laughs) It is not his best movie because it's not as personal a story as some of his really great movies. I don't think that makes it less great because it's not as personal. I don't know. There... There's something, though, about the emotional hooks that he gets into with some of those other movies, which I think just edges them just a little above it. That doesn't make this story any worse. It's just a personal thing for me that I enjoy those a little bit more. Okay. But, my God, this is him absolutely cementing and nailing his aesthetic. I mean, he did before this. This, I think, because the scope is so much bigger... That it's more impressive. Yes. There's a whole hotel. There's a city. There's an estate. There's all these other pieces to it that play into that aesthetic. And they have to serve that. And that's a lot. The hotel in and of itself is a character. And that has to rise to that level and also age at the same time. You know, the other movie he pulled this off in was Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yes. He tried to do this in a live action setting in Moonrise Kingdom because in his earlier movies, he doesn't really world build that much. They're very contained worlds. Yeah. I mean, the Royal Tenenbaums has the house. Zisu has the submarine and Darjeeling has the train. But like all the location stuff is just kind of what he finds on his way. It's in this second half of what he's done where he's making these worlds Mm -hmm. so it's a lot more about creating a whole environment for the characters to inhabit Mm -hmm. i think that's that's where the biggest amount of success for this movie is is you feel like you're in zabrovka in the hotel everything feels on that pun intended grand scale well i don't i we're just we're in his world yeah and it's good (laughs) oh it's very good It's so fucking funny. It's so surprising and yet also not like shocking in any way. Mm -hmm. It throws surprises at you just because of who's in it and who's doing what in it. But at the same time, right after he surprises you, you go, well, that's Wes Anderson. So of course he would do that. (laughs) Well, the budget for this film was $25 million. Okay. Which is pretty surprising for a movie of this scope. Yeah. But, you know, being practical in how you film and and what you're filming works. And we'll talk a lot about how he sort of worked the location of this, because that, I think, did a tremendous amount for him. It grossed $173 million. Yep. (laughs) It was the highest grossing limited release film of the year. Everybody said it was successful for that year. It would probably be up in the top rankings of limited release films throughout time because like that's a huge return on a film that didn't show in a lot of theaters sure i mean it's 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 a specific thing like i gen i don't think wes anderson films are ever going to be released wide no because it's a very specific audience 
And yet this really crossed over. It is that good. And I think this is to its benefit because it's not, it doesn't seem, because we don't really know, no. It doesn't seem like a personal story. It's not. It's less precious and less quirky and not to its detriment, not in a bad way. But one of the things Wes consistently has done is he put he has put some really dark elements in those stories that are really personal. And that cuts people off from seeing them. Yeah, that's fair. He, he has a real fascination with suicide and institutionalization. Those themes are heavy in his previous films. This one doesn't have that. The only scene where I was really worried we were going to get to it was the baths. At the end of the day, the most tense we get is fascism in a prison. And even then, it's still pretty light. It is very much the grown-up version of Fantastic Mr. Fox. An extraordinary man with a mentor in tow. That one is a son and a father, but, you know, this is a very similar vibe. And then an adventure unfolds around them. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't hurt that the two main characters are, A, so well-written. And then B, so well acted mm-hmm. by two people with very different experiences in film. Sure. You know, and then you add in all the aesthetic stuff. That's just some really amazing frosting on this very delicious cake. It's such a solid movie, like just a movie going experience mm-hmm. outside of any of the story elements, outside of any of the Wes Andersonisms of it. I think that's what really makes it so successful is it's just like. I just want to sit down and watch this Mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And that leads us to our writing. This is an interesting point because this is not a personal story for Wes. Mm -hmm. It is directly inspired by the writings of author Stefan Zweig. He was a novelist at the turn of the 20th century whose novels and biographies inspired many different films and adaptations. But Anderson said that he was browsing a Parisian bookstore, found one of his novels, read it for about 45 minutes, and then immediately bought it and became an instant fan of all of his work. Mm, And his books Beware of Pity and The Post Office Girl were two of the main inspirations for the story itself. So he then co-writes this screenplay, and he works with a gentleman named Hugo Guinness. Guinness is working on the story for the French Dispatch, and was the voice of Bunce of Bogus Bunce and Bean in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Okay. So he is a relatively new collaborator with Wes Anderson. But this is truly an adaptation. Hmm. Okay. And I think you're right that that's not necessarily a bad thing for Wes. I mean, the, the things I've had issues with in the past is that the story wasn't that compelling or it wandered too much. And I don't have a problem with we're going to tell this. We're going to tell kind of a slice of life snippet with some shenanigans. That's fine. But it still has to be compelling. Like the journey I go on with these characters has to be enjoyable. I didn't really think Moonrise Kingdom was that enjoyable. Like it wasn't bad, but it was just like this wanders too much. Our focus is in a weird place. This one doesn't do that. We wander a lot, but it it serves the story better. It fills in these corners of the pages in a way that is really entertaining and I don't feel like there was a time where I was like why are we doing this like I didn't I didn't get the fatigue that comes with the wandering yeah I will also say that out of all of his movies that I've seen this is the most rewatchable by far oh well it's very funny I mean I hold 
the Royal Tenenbaums really close to my heart as a movie that, you know, impacted me emotionally. This movie is so much more watchable from a, I'm just going to turn this on and watch it standpoint, (laughs) because it's just telling a really compelling story. Mm. I hope he's, if he does more adaptations, that he's able to find similar writers and voices because he clearly had a, a plot structure and an author whose work really spoke to him mm-hmm. in an avenue where him throwing his aesthetic and his, and his dialogue mm-hmm. style on top of it only made the story better. Yeah, His style of writing could easily trash an otherwise really good story because the dialogue just contradicts what that writer does. True. And it could also be his aesthetic could come off as really saccharine. Yeah. To some things like I'd almost love to see him do almost a horror story, but then like still maintaining this aesthetic. I think that's a difference. That's very Stepford Wives. His version of Stepford Wives could be amazing. Yeah, you wouldn't be wrong. And it would be fucking hilarious. I think it could be. I think him taking a story that he was inspired by is to his benefit. I think it's to his benefit, and I think it works really well for him as he continues into this next part of his filmmaking career. Like, he's told a lot of personal stories, mm-hmm. and you do wonder if he's going to run out of that eventually. Moonrise Kingdom maybe felt a little bit like that, because some of the charm wasn't there from some of those other stories he's told. So it's like, have you maybe kind of tapped into that, and now it's time to look at other stories outside of your own to try to to try to try pull from? I don't know. It's It's interesting. The French Dispatch seems like it's also going to be pulling from outside material as well. So I think this may be a trend for him as a writer going forward. I like that. I think it's a good idea for him. I'm excited for the French Dispatch. I'm still a little, you know, his trailers don't do his movies justice. No. (laughs) They they really don't. Um, He needs someone else to do his trailers. Really, all you're getting is the showcase of who's in my movie. And it's just like a fuck ton of people. There are always 20 major movie stars to advertise for his films, so getting an actual cohesive trailer is kind of difficult. Pretty much. (laughs) Uh, It's a a double-edged sword. Zweig was an inspiration for lots of different things in the movie. Both the young author and the character of Gustav were modeled extensively on Stefan Zweig and his whole persona and the opening bust of the author. You know, the characters kind of resemble it that we see, but Mm -hmm. that bust is very much close to Stefan Zweig's bust and and profile. Uh, Zabrowska was named after a Polish vodka liqueur of the same name. Okay. It is not a real place. And despite the name of the film being Budapest, Prague was his biggest inspiration for the look and feel of the movie, which does make a lot of sense. It has that very Eastern yet colorful vibe that Prague and the Czech Republic have. The town of Lutz, which is mentioned many times and we see is based on Lodz in Poland. Okay. And he references Agatha Christie multiple times in the film. Of course, we have the character named Agatha, but we also have the phrase Tontine used throughout the film a lot, which is actually a clue from one of the Marple Mysteries 450 from Paddington. Okay. And finally, based on the styling and story, it's very clear that the character of Jopling, Willem Dafoe's character, was inspired by Gromek, a character from Alfred Hitchcock's Torn Curtain. He's pulling lots of different European influences for the characters and the style, for sure. I think that's something else that 
and this gets into directing a little bit, but it, it's something that's very indicative in this movie. It's a much more European movie than his other films have been. Mm-hmm. And he has a very European style and he's applied it to American films. In this style, it just fits like a glove. Oh, it, it absolutely does. Instead of, you know, kind of feeling like, well, we have this weird, precious American tweeness. It was like, no, this is just Europe. <laughs> like, this is just what it is. Yeah. And we're in the 30s and the 60s, so it's even more Europe. Mm. And that leads us straight into our directing. Of course, it is Wes Anderson. How do we feel about the directing of this film? I think this is his best directed film that, that we have seen. It is wild how much he is throwing at the wall with this movie and yet still manages to make it feel cohesive. See, I don't see it as throwing things at the wall. I feel like I'm seeing choices. Choices were made. That's true. I do have a problem with one thing that he did. That was a language choice. But the decisions with the actors and the framing and, you know, where you can tell like, oh, we're looking at a model right now. All of those things, these are choices that he made. And you can see that in a good way. And it's like, okay, I'm, I, I like it. I'm here for it. It's almost like he finally feels confident in his ability to create those, those worlds in some ways. I don't think that has anything to do with it. I think it's the story he's telling is much bigger than what he's told before. Mm. So it's very much go big or go home. It fits his big go big style of storytelling. He's not really a go big kind of guy in his previous works. This one feels that way because the story and the setting requires it. Yeah. So maybe he felt like, all right, I'm ready to do something bigger. Okay. But I don't think it has anything to do with him not previously feeling like, oh, I could do this or I feel comfortable with myself. No, the dude's been very comfortable with himself. (laughs) Like comfort is not a problem for Wes Anderson when it comes to I'm going to do what I want. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's true. The the tale of the troubled child. Yeah, <laughs> it's just the movie is bigger. It's a bigger film. Just look at the scale of the hotel that we have to take in and understand and experience is huge. He's never done that before, but he's also not had a story that required it. Yeah. Where I do take umbrage with him is the use of not just once, but several times u- using the F slur within this film. Uh, there, there's, there's just no excuse for it. I don't care if it's a European film or at least they're telling a story from an old time. It wasn't necessary and it wasn't needed and it was inappropriate. Not, not in a world that we've set up as being stylized that way, but also completely outside of it. I, I just don't I don't care. It's not necessary. You're not telling a historically accurate depiction of something. And even if you were, you don't need it. Not for not for the story you're telling. You don't need it. He's got one or two of those moments in just about every movie where you're like, my dude, that was not good. That was not good. Someone needed to tell you no on that. <sighs> so, yeah. Make better choices, Wes. Well, if Zweig was the biggest influence on the writing of this film, the German director Ernst Lubitsch was the biggest visual influence. Very big on the German impressionism going on here. Mm-hmm. While filming, the cast all stayed at the Hotel Börse in Görlitz, Germany, while also filming there. 
Anderson insisted makeup and costume happen in the lobby so that they could continue to rotate the filming out in various locations, both there and in and around the area. Mm -hmm. Almost everything got filmed in this town in Germany, and they just swapped out different locations. He asked all the male cast to grow out all their hair and facial hair in the months leading up to filming, and then they styled everyone at the set once they arrived. Okay. Yeah, that's not an unusual thing. We do that in the theater all the time. Oh, you get cast in a show? Stop shaving. But especially for all these actors. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> Quoting Anderson, I think we certainly have the maximum supply of mustaches in this film. Mm-hmm. Which I am here for all the mustaches. <laughs> so many. And they're all very good. They're very fun. Even Tony Revolori's, which is drawn on with a pencil. So adorable. <laughs> The owner of the actual hotel acted as an extra working the front desk in one scene. And after filming each day, the crew often returned to find him at the front desk of their hotel. (laughs) Okay. They started filming with the 1968 sequences with Jude Law and F. Marie Abraham. Mm -hmm. Because when they got to Gerlitz and the shuttered concert hall Stadthalle, where they were filming stuff, they were in the ideal condition. They were run down, shabby a little bit falling apart, Mm -hmm. but with that exact look that they keep talking about during those scenes. Like, they found it in that condition. And so immediately they said, we're rearranging everything. We're doing those scenes first because it means we have to do no set dressing. We can just film it as is. That's awesome. And then they could work around that afterwards for the rest of the scenes. Stadthalle then served as the trophy room for the reading of the will, the dining hall, the hall of armored suits where Joplin chases Kovacs, the train facade, and the inner rooms of the monastery. That money went to the actors and then finding locations that they could reuse over and over and over again. (laughs) He is very, very resourceful, if nothing else, and he took a sizable budget for him and made it work. Yep. The production team then redressed all of it to make it look like a resort hotel in the 1930s. They removed the drop ceiling from the building to showcase the original three-floor hotel and then digitally added three more floors on top of it to make it look like it had six floors as in the film. Okay. Well, it looks awesome. I know. They mix so much of that, and then he mixes the models in, which he loves He loves, even now in his live action, inserting into the movie, Mm -hmm. which really just adds that charmed feel to it. It's wild because he didn't. I mean, he'd done a little bit of the models before, but it really shows up after he does the live action with Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like a thing for you now. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. The actual design of the Grand Hotel was based on the Palace Bristol Hotel in Karlovivari in Hungary. The hotel has a funicular and a mountain landmark of a deer statue. The Grand Hotel Poop in Karlovivari and the Hotel Gellert in Budapest were also influences. So it's all stuff in and around Hungary and and Budapest. And everything was capped off with an Art Nouveau exterior. They did a ton of research for this stuff. The wedding sequence is filmed in front of the Saxon Switzerland in Saxony, Germany. That is an actual cliff formation that they're in front of in that picture, which is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful shot right at the end. And they filmed, and this is very clear, in three different aspect ratios, changing the screen to reflect the different time periods. Hmm. 
Hmm. When you're in the 1930s, you have the one by one three three format, the sort of almost square format that would be in mm-hmm. old 1930s movies. In the 60s, you have the big wide stretch format. So it's like one to two. Yeah. And then in the 80s, in the few to- the beginning and the end of the movie, we're in standard or 1.85. So they switched how the screen looked in order to show what period it meant. Mm-hmm. But that meant Fox Searchlight had to issue specific instructions to projectionists on how to show the film. Yeah. (laughs) With a big giant note that said it must be screened in a standard 1.85 movie ratio Mm -hmm. so that you would get the variance in the ratios on screen. Okay. Any other screening, you would mess it up. And then they had like all sorts of color settings and other stuff they added too because of how much detail was in the movie. But like there was a very specific layout of how you had to screen this in order to get the right effect. That's intense. It's a lot. And I noticed I I did notice it a little bit, especially when you see F. Murray Abraham and Jude Law sitting and you've got that big white Mm -hmm. kinescope screen. You're going, why are they doing that? And then you go, oh, yeah, that's what a 1960s movie would look like. Mm hmm. So it's a subtle thing that he did, but it's really smart because it does delineate where you are in time. Yeah. And that gets us through Wes and brings us to our cast now. Our cast is monstrous. But on the other hand, most of them are Arpons because they're only in the movie for a limited amount of time. We only have five main actors. And we're going to start with one who we did talk about quite a bit in our Bond series. It's Ray Fiennes playing M. Gustav. How do we feel about Ray Fiennes in this movie? He's precious. What a goddamn revelation for Ray Fiennes. I mean, it's a lovely send up of the stuffy Englishman that he's he's either playing a bad dude or a stuffy Englishman. Like that's those are the lanes that he's been put in, which is fine. He plays all of those very well. Yes. This is just like I'm a hot trot Englishman. <laughs> I'm hot shit. So I'm going to go for it. And it's it's just the right amount of campy because if it if it leaned too much more, it would be unbelievable and, and obnoxious. And it's just right. It's just right. He plays it absolutely straight down the line mm-hmm. and so, so dry. Yep. But the whole time you see this twinkle in his eye, like he knows what the fuck he's saying. Oh, yeah. And it's adorable. <laughs> He's been in so much stuff. He he also does like lots of just great character roles mm-hmm. in between all of this stuff. But this this is the opposite of like trying to play against type. It's trying to lean into type in the best best way and mm-hmm. it just he somehow makes this movie shine even more than it possibly could just on its own. Mm-hmm. Like they picked the perfect guy to do this. Oh yes. He's fabulous. And, of course, the character was written with him in mind, which, who else were you going to get to play this? Mm-hmm. There's no who could have been better. I don't even know who you would start to think about getting, giving this role. I, I, I don't know. Who, who we got. <laughs> there, there are no who could have been better. No. It was written for him. It works fabulous for him. It's also a testament to him that he knows how to play that and, and knows how to make fun of that persona he's built for himself as an actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he modeled his character voice and timing off of comedian and actor Leonard Rossiter, who appeared in 2001 in Barry Lyndon. So he went for that dry British humor. Mm-hmm. 
he did get some unwarranted attention from the press for this film. Designer Annie Atkins noted in interviews that they created a prop notebook for Gustav to write in. Fines noticed that there were no lines in the notebook, and he successfully argued to the production team and Wes Anderson that Gustav would be so organized and meticulous he would write in a lined notebook. Mm-hmm. That's not just a positive for his character, that's a positive for the film, because it makes that consistency for that character. So they, they all agreed, they replaced it with a lined notebook, but apparently the British press got a hold of this and started alleging him to be a spoiled brat, because he needed lines in his notebook. Mm. So Annie Atkins had to stop using that example of how they used it for the process, because they all took the wrong message. Oh, yeah. I mean... I remember I was doing a show where we had some props and we had we made a scroll. We made some scrolls or whatnot. And, you know, people were having fun with them. They they wrote some silly rest because they're supposed to be like magic spells on the scrolls. So people like wrote like some like cheeky, th- like nothing inappropriate, but just like being clever. But it takes this many actors and this many crew to make one fabulous show, like stuff like that, like sweet, silly stuff. And the actor who had to use them was just like, you have to, you can't. They have mm-hmm. to go away. It's distracting. I They either have to be the actual lines or they have to be blank. And so I was just like, well, that's kind of sad because these were cute. But like, OK, fine. <laughs> I get like I get it. It's just like, you know, that's not a diva thing. It's like I'm trying to do my job and the thing is distracting me. So can we make it less distracting? Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's what that story means. And I love the fact, too, that it's also one of those things that thinking about it, had we seen this intricate notebook that wasn't lined, mm-hmm. it might throw us off just that little bit because seeing it lined makes a lot of sense for who mm-hmm. Gustav is as a character. Yeah. And you know Wes is going to show that fucking notebook because mm-hmm. he does. He shows every fucking prop he can. There is one other fun story. During the confession to Serge in the monastery, each actor was filmed separately because they had to film each side of the confessional booth. Sorry. Wes thought both performances were just fine. You know, he got the takes he needed and they moved on. But Fines almost had them redo it because he was so impressed by Matthew Amalric in his performance in that scene that he said, quote, if I had known he was going to do it that well, mm-hmm. now I need feel I need to do my part over again, unquote. <laughs> Interesting. He thought the other guy was so good. He was like, well, shit, now I got to up my game. Get me back in there. <laughs> Ray Fine seems like a delightful human being to make a film with. Yeah. I could see that. Let's talk about his counterpart, who is almost as good, maybe even just as good as Rafe Fiennes. Got the harder role. It's Tony Revolori as Zero. Mm -hmm. This is his feature film debut. He had done TV guest star stuff up until this. What a debut. After this, he was in Dope, The Fifth Wave, Spider-Man Homecoming, The Sound of Silence, Spider-Man Far From Home, and Servant on television. And upcoming, he will be in The French Dispatch, Spider-Man No Way Home, and he's already cast in the next Wes Anderson film that is featuring Tom Hanks. That's the big star we know. Uh, okay. So he is now part of Wes's rotation. Right. I mean. Officially. He's earned it. He's so good. <laughs> he's fabulous. He is. I mean, he is, he is fabulous. And he has the harder role. Because he has to react, but also remain stoic because that's his job as the lobby boy. Like, I'm supposed to be unseen, but available all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And so he has to rise to the performance that 
Ray finds is giving, but also be his own person. It's very difficult and he is fabulous. And I love that, you know, like we have this and then, you know, we've, we had previously only seen him in Spider-Man. It's just like, you're such a dick. But (laughs) But the way he is in that movie, it's just like, there's so much going on with this guy, which is fabulous. And it also speaks to being well-written, but it's just like, I get the, like, there's something else happening with this guy. He's not just an asshole. It's yeah. great. It's absolutely great. And to see it here, just being like, wow, this is amazing. And I can't, I just can't wait to see him do more. He's so perfect at the stone face. What's wild is, is that there's so many, there, there's lots of actors who can do the stone face. It's even harder to do the stone face and see all the emotions underneath that Mm -hmm. and the subtle variations on that (laughs) just just him seething with anger without actually seething with anger and saying don't hit on her so funny it reminds me of jason schwartzman in rushmore that performance it's got a lot of that same energy where it's i'm gonna be cooler than everybody but deep down inside i'm in fucking turmoil and for this character it's it's a different path because Mm -hmm. it's I have to be cool because this is my only chance to really move up in the world <laughs> mm-hmm. based on what where I am in life and where I am in society. He nails it. And the fact that he's going to be in all of Wes's movies going forward, it seems like, damn, oh, yeah. damn, son, you're going to win yourself an Oscar if you keep doing stuff like this. I mean, be up there. You could be doing it. I believe it. The only note we have is that his character was named after Zero Mostel. That's cool very famous actor but also the line that they give and the the interview he does where it explains zero zero mm-hmm. zero and you go oh yeah such a such a perfect subtle little thing that Wes throws in there to get the point across of the mm-hmm. character this movie's like reading a really good book that's what it is that's what this movie is mm-hmm. it's like a cozy little book afternoon that you're like oh if it starts raining this fall, or it's like crisp and chilly, I'm going to go grab a cup of coffee and just watch this movie. Then we have Saoirse Ronan as Agatha. Saoirse. This is our first time talking about her in an official capacity, although she has, of course, been a huge fixture in recent films. Mm-hmm. But before this, she was in Atonement, City of Ember, The Lovely Bones, The Secret World of Arietti, The Way Back, Hannah, Violet and Daisy, Byzantium, The Host, and How I Live Now. After this, she was in Muppets Most Wanted, Lost River, Brooklyn, Lady Bird, The Seagull, Mary Queen of Scots, Little Women, Ammonite, and then she will be in The French Dispatch. Yep. She's so adorable in this movie. She is very adorable. And that's not a tone she plays very often. No, she is the character with the purest motives sure but that's what i mean is that she rarely plays that type of character she rarely plays sweet yeah because as an actress she has that edge and so they always want to do it she has that edge and then she also started so young and she was able to play the the characters that make you tilt your head and go hmm Mm -hmm. so i mean she's fabulous she'll she'll you know we'll get her statue later it's fine she's yeah she's always been fabulous just such a wonderful little counterpart to Zero and to uh, Gustav of being these total raconteurs way in over their heads. And she's like, what What did I get involved with? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? Why? 
and then just deciding, well, this is the guy I've chosen to love, and this is his best friend. Yep. <laughs> a man 40 years older than him. Okay. <laughs> Maybe the best story ever for Sersha is that she went and talked to Wes Anderson about what accent she should use, because she had never used her actual accent in a film up until this point. Mm-hmm. She's frequently done just straight American voices or maybe an Eastern European accent in some things. And so Anderson said, quote, well, Ralph is speaking like an English person and Jeff is speaking like Jeff Goldblum and Tony is speaking in the accent of Anaheim and we have German actors who are speaking with German accents. So I guess Irish? (laughs) Ronan replied that she'd never played a character with her actual accent. And so Wes, in interviews, said her first time is when she's playing a bakery girl from Zabrovka. Okay. Why not? Only in a Wes Anderson movie can you pull that off. (laughs) Yep, that sounds accurate. Then we have Jude Law as the young writer. We have never talked about Jude Law on this show before. I don't think that we have. It's wild to me. No, it sounds accurate. (laughs) (laughs) He hasn't been in big things that, well, he hasn't been doing a lot of big stuff that we would have gone to seeing, much less you know, in the, the realm of movies that we're trying to watch. <laughs> yeah. He is a, he's one of those very interesting cases of someone who can clearly be a movie star, but more often than not winds up in character roles mm-hmm. because of just where his talents are. So before this, he was in Bent, Wild, Gattaca, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, Immortality, Existence, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Enemy at the Gates, AI, Artificial Intelligence, Road to Perdition, Cold Mountain, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, I Heart Huckabees, Alfie, Closer, The Aviator, A Series of Unfortunate Events, All the King's Men, Breaking and Entering, My Blueberry Nights, Sleuth, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, Sherlock Holmes, Repo Men, Contagion, Hugo, Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, Anna Karenina, and Dom Hemingway. After this, he was in Spy, Genius, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, The Young Pope, Vox Lux, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, Captain Marvel, The Nest, and The Rhythm Section. And he is going to be in Fantastic Beasts 3, Peter Pan and Wendy, and Sherlock Holmes 3 upcoming. It's going to be Captain Hook. I like that. It's good for Jude Law. I like him as a Captain Hook. That sounds fun. I don't hate him in this film as an observer. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a really interesting choice for him. It doesn't hurt that he's a very good match as a 20 years younger Tom Wilkinson. Sure. But like, it's a really good chance for him to be an audience surrogate, which is not the type of role we typically see him in. Mm -hmm. He just gets to kind of be amazed and impacted by this really fascinating story. It's a lot of little things he's doing. It's fun to get to see Jude Law do something like that. But he's also not in the movie that much. No, he's not. And finally... He's a man we've talked about a handful of times, both for the Sunshine Boys in a very small role and Last Action Hero as a bad guy. F. Murray Abraham playing Mr. Mustafa. I I love him so much. He is the perfect narrator for this movie. He's a fabulous narrator. I just look at his career and go, you are so interesting because I look Amadeus this and mythic quest <laughs> he has a fabulous role in mythic quest that is so funny i mean he was in he was in freaking scarface my brain can't can't just opposite pacino just acting it up yeah 
he is truly one of those actors that could do whatever you asked him to. Mm-hmm. And in this, he just gets to be the beautiful storyteller that yeah. he kind of always is. Uh-huh. His voice is so wonderful and mm-hmm. mellifluous and like perfect for playing the narrator of this. But what's really amazing are not just the shots at the restaurant and in the bathtubs. I think the one that gets me the most is when he, sh- when he gets to the portrait. Mm-hmm. When he gets to Boy with Apple behind the desk and is walking out and kind of turning out the lights. And you're just like, cut. He's, he's so incredibly charming, but you also see that he's taken the time to absorb the history of Zero Mm-hmm. and all of this time with the hotel to tell the story. There are lots of actors who would just kind of do it and you know be the narrator voice, and he goes above and beyond that. Mm-hmm. And it sells the movie. Yep. It crowns the fucking movie, and it's beautiful. <laughs> the only note for him is that his appearance is based on a writer and professor named Harold Jaffe, of whom Wes was a huge fan. Mm-hmm. The beard, the little kind of puffy fro very much that style and now we get to arpons and oh my god mm. are there a lot of them we start with matthew almaric as serge x he is the great french character actor and the main bad guy in quantum of solace yep who could have been better Ooh. jean dujardin of the artist okay and your boy vincent cassell now, I love Vincent Cassell, but he's too pretty for Serge X. No, and that's not true. That's not possible. Okay. That role, right. you do not have to be an attractive person. Like, you don't, like, you can be super hot or you can be super character actor looking. Hmm. Like, I don't know. You, you do not have to be hot for that role. You have to be interesting. Oh, I agree. I think just Amor gave me more of that Peter Laurie vibe of like the film noir. Mm-hmm. side guy who's in over his head. Matthew Almorick gave me that way more than Vincent Cassell ever would. I don't know. There's just something about Vincent Cassell where it's like, I don't know about this. But Vincent Cassell in this movie would have been fantastic mm-hmm. anywhere. Put him in any role. I don't care. Adrian Brody playing Dimitri. I mean, put the guy in a severe timeout, but he's also really good in this movie. Mm-hmm. He's kind of playing the perfect version of this naughty brother. Yeah. Willem Dafoe as Jopling. Crazy eyes, Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Jeff Goldblum playing Deputy Kovacs. Admittedly, maybe belongs in the main category here, but my God, he's good. He's he's barely in it, but it's also Jeff fucking Goldblum. Seeing him in this film, because I didn't look at the cast before we got to it, and I was like, yeah, that makes the most sense. There's like this whole long paragraph of a quote that Wes gave about how much he loves Jeff Goldblum as an mm-hmm. actor because of his ability to just take any dialogue and make it beautiful on screen. Yeah. And he's perfect in this. Uh, the character's full name, Vilmos Kovacs, is named after sometimes mentioned cinematographers on this podcast, Vilmos Zygmunt and Laszlo Kovacs. Oh, okay. We have Harvey Keitel playing Ludwig. They just told Harvey Keitel, you're going to look like you're in a French movie, but you're going to be Harvey Keitel. And Harvey went, cool, where do I sign? I love it. Bill Murray as M. Ivan. Okay. Edward Norton playing Inspector Hankles. Jason Schwartzman playing M. Jean. Lea Seydoux playing Clotilde. We mentioned her with James Bond and Mission Impossible. Tilda Swinton playing Madame D. 
Fun fact for this, she spent five hours in the makeup chair for the old age makeup for this role. Mm -hmm. Anderson, quote, we're not usually working with a vast Bruckheimer type budget on my film, so we're usually trying to find a workaround. But for the old age makeup, I just said, let's get the most expensive people we can. (laughs) And who could have been better? Dame Angela Lansbury was originally supposed to perform this role. Ooh, okay. She had scheduling conflicts while doing a stage revival of Driving Miss Daisy, so she couldn't appear. But wow, she would have been very good with Ray Fiennes. All right. As it is, Tilda Swinton is a very good choice. Tom Wilkinson as the author. Owen Wilson as M. Chuck. They didn't even try to give him a European sounding name. He's just M. Chuck. Because as I previously stated, that man cannot change his voice. He can only ratchet up the Southern up or down. That's it. Also a very fun choice to make the one like American American dude, not even nearly continental, be the guy who has to take over the hotel for the Nazis. Love it. And I also love his mustache. It's great. Mm, they're, they're all very good. None of them beat Bill Murray's. Larry Pine playing Mr. Mosher. He was the awful dad in Moonrise Kingdom. Okay. Bob Balaban playing M. Martin. Fisher Stevens playing M. Robin. And it's just like, Fisher Stevens, who the heck else are you going to pull in here? Wallace Wolodarski playing M. George. He was Kylie the Opossum in Fantastic Mr. Fox. He's a film behind the scenes guy that works with Wes a lot, but he got to be in a couple of roles now. Okay. Waris Aluwalia playing M. Dino. He was in The Life Aquatic and had a major part as the train concierge guy in the Darjeeling Limited. And he is also from one of our favorite movies, The Inside Man, the Sikh in that movie. Okay. Carl Sprague playing a distant relation. He is a concept illustrator for this film. Lucas Hedges reappearing as a pump attendant. Gabriel Rush, one of the other scouts, is Otto. And there is a rumor, not verified, though it very much looks like him, that during the shootout, a bearded George Clooney Mm -hmm. appears in a blink and you'll miss it moment. And that gets us to trivia. Trivia. The good luck kid sequence where Keitel snaps Tony Revolori was filmed 52 times to get the shot right, and Keitel actually slapped Revolori for each take. Nope. I hate it. Not Mm. great. Figure out a stage slap, y'all. Yep. The food, being a major plot point in the film, required making actual pastries on screen, something that Saoirse Ronan said was particularly difficult given the courtesan au chocolat, the signature pastry. Mm. (laughs) As a gift to the cast and crew, Anderson had L'Air de Panache produced by a Parisian perfumier. Okay. And he also gifted several of the cast and crew robes modeled after the design of the Grand Budapest Hotel. According to Jeff Goldblum, it is his favorite robe and he wears it every day while he gets his coffee. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Which is just like, God damn it, Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> the painting that replaces Boy with Apple is a mimic of early 1900s painter Egon Shyla. It was created by illustrator Rich Pellegrino, a contributor to a San Francisco exhibit called Bad Dads, which celebrates the work of Wes Anderson. Okay. This is our exhibit he knows. The title of that painting is Two Lesbians Masturbating, which is a fitting title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Boy with Apple appears in many different locations in the hotel throughout the film and is on the back of the menu when the older Zero begins to tell his story at the restaurant. I noticed that. Yeah. He, the detail and some of the subtlety. Like, he smacks you over the head with it a good amount of the time. 
Mm-hmm. But he threw in some subtle stuff too, which really like threaded everything through even more. The painting was created by artist Michael Taylor. The original now sits behind a chair in Wes's London office. And the fictional painter Johannes von Heutel the Younger, 1613 to 1699, was a mix of Hans Holbein the Younger and Lucas Cranach the Elder, both artists from the 1500s. The flower vase at the table actually represents some florology. There is a daffodil, which represents chivalry, and rosemary, which represents remembrance, a perfect description of Zero recounting the story of his mentor. Okay. Though shown very quickly, the newspaper stories connected to the film are actual historical stories, and if read carefully, will reveal much of the plot and ending of the film. Yeah. The skiing sequence was filmed using miniatures and animated skiers, along with all the close-ups that we did of the actual actors. Yep. They got their, quote, James Bond moment. <laughs> While filming, Wes saw a St. Bernard in the streets of Gerlitz, got the dog's information, and hired it for the film. The dog's owner was also in the film, so they did not have to hire an animal wrangler. Per Anderson, quote, I hope that's legal, unquote. <laughs> the score of the film, which was really highly regarded, features the use of the balalaika, the three-string triangular mm-hmm. Russian folk instrument. They gathered several dozen balalaika players together in Paris to record the soundtrack while Anderson attended. This is very akin to, there's a score for a movie called The Third Man, which used the Greek zither, mm-hmm. and it's very much akin to that, where they're clearly featuring this one instrument instead of an orchestra. That's cool. But that kind of plucked string works so well for Anderson's movies. It does. I mean, it's something that all his composers have done for his movies forever anyway. So, like, it just goes right into it. Ludwig's tattoos are a direct copy of the character of Père Jules from Jean Vigo's L'Atlante. The MAV on his left arm is the abbreviation of Morto Vache, or Death to Cows, a common refrain for the police in France. Okay. While demonstrating jumping over the sleeping prisoners to show the actors how to do it, Wes Anderson accidentally clipped one actor's mouth and that actor swallowed his false tooth. Per Anderson, quote, so we had to get him a new tooth. Yep. Unquote. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what you have to do at that point. Mm-hmm. When Dimitri checks into the Grand Budapest at the beginning of the war, M. Chuck offers him the Ferdinand Suite. Of course, that is a reference to the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in World War I. Mm-hmm. While Zero says the instructions to the hiding place of Boy with Apple are in code, when you read them, it's actually completely straightforward. There are just a few letters flipped backwards. Yeah. I noticed that. I was like, it's not really coded. It's just like really small. And it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient. He is the master of underselling. The actual thing in the best way. No, overselling. Like, taking things to, like, like hyperbole happens a lot. Oh, it's so good. But it's so sincere. Uh-huh. That's great. That's great. Just the, I, I don't want it. Take it anyway. Mm. Flutter, flutter, Take flutter. Take it anyway. <laughs> great. I love that. And finally, there is, in fact, an actual international society of hotel concierges. It mm-hmm. is called Le Clef d'Or, or... The Golden Keys, where member concierges can seek assistance from colleagues. They do wear lapel pins in the form of crossed keys, similar to the ones worn by Gustave and his colleagues. They won't let you, like, commit massive robberies and escape the law, but, you know, if you need help with some item that you can't get otherwise, 
your other concierge can come to your aid. I like it. That's nice. And that gets us to awards. Okay. This movie was nominated for nine Academy Awards. Wow. Okay. That's surprising. This movie made a huge impact critically and in the box office. Like, I I don't think I realized how big a deal this movie was. It won four Academy Awards. Okay. Best costume design. Sure. Best makeup and hairstyling. Sure. Best production design. Okay. And best original score. Okay. It is the first time a score for a comedy had won since Shakespeare in Love. Okay. Though that was in a year where they had separate categories for the scores for comedy and drama. Mm -hmm. It was the first to win since 1937's 100 Men and a Girl in a non-separated year. Hmm. That's some wild stuff. But when you use an innovative score like that, that'll get you some huge points. And it it goes perfectly with the film. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about what it lost. Okay. It lost Best Picture to Birdman. Yeah. What's interesting is that they're in very similar lanes. A little bit. A little bit. What's happening is completely different, but that's good competition. It is. It's that's, very good. Yeah. It lost best directing to Alejandro Giannarito or Birdman. Yeah. As he, sh- as he should have. I'm sorry. <laughs> you didn't deserve to win that. It lost best cinematography to Birdman. Also, same. The two are so intertwined, particularly Birdman. Uh-uh. It lost best editing to whiplash fair mm. look i i love how this movie is edited and constructed it's very good i'm just thinking about between birdman and whiplash i'm thinking about that com- i'm having that fight in my head whiplash was so good and birdman was kind of overblown okay that's blasphemous okay but <laughs> the editing of birdman is seamless because it has to be because it had to have been performed and directed that way. The greater technical skill on that is those performers and that director and the cinematographer. Because you had to pull all that shit off. The yeah. editor was just like, oh, you have 30 takes of this? Okay, I just have to make sure I edit them at the exact right point. And that's it. We got no other option. The editing for Whiplash is definitely a greater accomplishment. I'm just, hmm. The editing for this is so good too, though, and seamless. It is very good. It definitely helps tell the story. I'm not mad about it, though. I'm Here's the thing. That's a tough race. Oh, yeah. The right person won, but I, that's really good competition. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy with that. And it lost best original screenplay to Birdman. I think this is where we have the biggest argument. Well, who else was in the category? The other nominees. Boyhood, Richard Linklater. Foxcatcher, Max Fry and Dan Futterman. Nightcrawler, Dan Gilroy. So it was between these two. Well, that's not true because I remember Nightcrawler getting a lot of buzz for that. It's supposed to be an exquisite film. Here's here's the thing. This might be a case of split ticket. Very possible. Like, I'm not dissing on anybody, but it could be you won, but you won with 25% of the vote or, you know, whatever. You didn't win with 55, blah, blah, blah. You won with it. It was very close, which is fair. Um, I'm not. Again, that's good competition. It's kind of like that makes sense because Birdman and this film are playing in a very similar lane. I would say Birdman's not really a comedy, but it was probably seen as such to a degree. 
People didn't know what to think Birdman was. <laughs> here's the thing. Anytime there's a film with a gimmick, which Birdman has a huge gimmick, it's typically seen as a comedy. Yeah. Then we have, you know, 1917, and they did the same thing that Birdman accomplished. It is not a comedy at all. No! It is also a triumph of filmmaking. But so is Birdman, so I'm not mad. I'm not mad. That's it. Here's the thing. I'm glad it lost to something that was equally as good. That's fair. That I'm like, oh, I understand. That's a tough decision. I get less mad about that. It's fucking obvious. They don't even deserve to be in the goddamn category. That's when I get mad. This is more (laughs) of like, okay, or maybe this is just me maturing. It's probably not. But nine Academy Awards for this. That's a lot for what? It made an impact. Makes me think if, if French Dispatch goes the same direction. They're going to push it that way. I mean, here's the I don't the have thing. a problem with it. The push next year is to, to be to get Timothy Chalamet nominated again. He's more likely to get nominated for Dune as opposed to French Dispatch. But Golden Globes, he's getting pushed for both. For sure. Of course. I mean, hell, both of those movies are coming out on the same day. Well, then we'll see. I mean, Dune may be one of those movies that it's like, it looks gorgeous, but what's there? Yeah, I'm excited for it. It's one that I would really like to see on the big screen, but we have an HBO subscription, so we can watch it at home for free. So we need to be more economical about our movie viewing in-person options. We'll have to have that fight later. It's It's Danny Villeneuve. I can tell you how that fight's going to (laughs) go. And that gets us to our ratings ratings for this film it's going to be mustaches because there's so many fantastic oh mustaches. i was gonna say cross keys mm, mustaches Mustaches. i like the mustaches specifically belmar's mustache <laughs> they can be they can be whatever style of mustache you would like but how many mustaches are you going to give this film i'm gonna give it five wow whoa i say i rarely do but then looking at our past i was like i give us some fives very freely five this was so enjoyable to watch i was never bored i was never like is this still going i thoroughly enjoyed all the performances i enjoyed the story i loved all the visual aspects as i typically do i loved the music which i believe you said was alexander desplat yes love him he did the shape of water music which i thought was oh he also did moonrise kingdom which was a fantastic score was i thought this one was better yes but the movie's better i love his work Anytime I figure like, oh, that's that dude. Yes, of course it's that dude because I love it so much. It's just, it's working. All of it's working. None of the cameos are too much, which, you know, you expect them in a West film, but they were fun. And they, he picked his heavy hitters cameos in the exact right place. So it was, we were like, oh, of course, this is when we're going to see all of our friends. And it was enjoyable. It's a five for me. God damn it. It's a five for me too. <laughs> And you know what it is? All of it's really good. And it's so rewatchable. And so I sit there and I go, I don't know if this feels like a five. And then I think about how I felt about Ray Fiennes. Mm -hmm. And that's what tips it over for me, is the lead guy in this movie getting to take this character that he's played forever Mm -hmm. and just get to launch it into the stratosphere. Like, I have never seen him do that before. Never. And it was so much fun. And I'm mm-hmm. giggling the whole time. And I do, I feel like giddy and I enjoyed it. And then I go, I just want to watch it over and over again. It's a five. Yep. It's, it's a, a five. Five, it's five, a five mustaches for this film. A great note to end on. 
for this Anderson series. It's been a long time coming for us, and there are certainly other pieces we have to fill in, but these were the big ones that we needed to fill in for ourselves. And yeah, I'm really glad we got to do it. I'm glad we got to do it. I'm glad both of these, you know, Wes has the movie coming out later this fall, Mm -hmm. and then both are going to have projects in 2022. Yeah, so it prepped us to to enjoy their new films that are coming and uh gives me a fresh perspective especially on wes paul thomas anderson seems like he's keeping on paul thomas andersoning just fine i'm i'm glad that the mysticism around the master is gone a little bit i'm glad that i've seen it so i can know Mm -hmm. but yeah he's gonna do what he's gonna do i would say he's vastly improved (laughs) and i'm i i look forward to his next film which is currently titled soggy bottoms but that's just his bullshit title the cast involvement sounds perfectly paul thomas anderson oh sure it's bradley cooper uh he's gonna go for the oscar he's that's that's what that's gonna be so i'm excited well that's it for the andersons and that leads us to what's coming next Ooh, next we're going to do something that david never thought he would volunteer for much less suggest. Mm. I, I think I want to state that David suggested this series. Yeah, I did, and I don't know why. Because I've proven you wrong every single time. So Fuck it, we're talking about musicals. We're talking about movie musicals. <laughs> and when we sat down with the list of the big ones, there are a lot of big ones that neither of us have seen. There's so many goddamn musicals that have been made throughout film. Yes. Like... It's near impossible to have just like seen all of them. And I've made you watch two so far for this show. Mm. Singing in the Rain and Sound of Music, both of which you loved. Well, we also had to watch Funny Face. But I also hated those, so. (laughs) Those were horrible. And we watched Hello, Dolly, which was not good, but. It was so fun, though, but it was fine. It was bad, but fine. And then, you know, Funny Girl and Funny Lady. There was Meet Me in St. Louis. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that, which is technically a musical, but it really doesn't feel like a musical. And that movie was amazing. That was a beautiful Christmas movie. Meet Me in St. Louis was baller. I love that movie. Man, I made you watch a lot of musicals. We've done Funny a lot of Face, musicals. Funny Face was not my fault. And yet there's so many goddamn more. There's so many more. And we're spanning so many decades with our musicals. So it's going to be a lot. There's going to be a lot of musicals. Prepare yourselves. There's going to be a lot of singing, a lot of dancing. No no singing from us. Maybe some dancing from us. Maybe. No, there will be singing. It's going to happen. It's gonna <laughs> it depends. Happen. It's going to happen. Unless we hate the songs. Yeah, and then we'll sing them because they'll get stuck in our head. And we'll, we'll rewrite them as parodies and it'll be horrible. But amazing. But before we go, we have some new movies we've seen. So we saw The Eyes of Tammy Faye. An intimate look at the extraordinary rise, fall, and redemption of televangelist Tammy Faye Baker. This was our first movie back at the Alamo Draft House. Hey. Yeah, we got to like it was it was really exciting to get to go back there. They're doing a really good job of trying to like maintain distances and keep things safe for everybody attending. And I really appreciate it. And we miss the Alamo so much. We've not been there since March of 2020. So yeah. <laughs> like we've, we've really missed our Alamo draft house. This movie was so good. Surprisingly good. It's a wonderful biopic. It's definitely at Jessica Chastain's going to get nominated. She just is. 
but it's earned. It's totally fair. Um, will she win? I don't think so, but it's going to, it's going to, there's going to be a race here. It's great. And I think the thing that I was most nervous about this film is that it was just going to gloss over the bad shit that the bakers did with the televangelism stuff. And it doesn't. And I don't think it tries to absolve Tammy of anything, but just be like, this is who this woman was. And the fact that this woman did as much as she could with the rest of her life Uh to actually try to find some redemption. I I think the thing that I found the most interesting is that she was just a true believer and she thought she was following God. Yep. Which is really interesting. So if you have issues with religion, it's going to be a hard movie. But it is a very good one. And Jessica Chastain is fabulous in this film. I have to give it up to Michael Showalter, who directed this. The man who brought us wet, hot American summer. (laughs) And has just been a a weird comedy staple for so long. Really infused heart in every single moment of this movie. Mm -hmm. In a way that didn't feel pat, didn't gloss over the bad shit and the rough spots of her life. And yet at every moment still felt like it was like, this woman's full of love. (laughs) It reminded me a whole hell of a lot of us talking about Donnie and Magnolia. I have so much love to give and I don't know where to put put it. it. Yeah, that's, yeah. And her life feels like that. Yeah, it was really great. And Sherry Jones is fabulous. Andrew Garfield's great. It was just really, it was a great movie all around. Mm -hmm. We also saw Candyman. A sequel to the horror film Candyman, 1992, that returns to the now gentrified Chicago neighborhood where the legend began. So I've never seen the original. Neither have I. Our plan was to watch that before we saw this one, but that didn't work out. And we had an opportunity to go, so we're like, let's go. And I love this. It was so good. Holy shit. Like, I felt the same way I felt after Get Out. And that was like, that was so good. The hype train on this movie got probably way too high when it was initially supposed to come out. I I don't think that it got too high. I think that it got derailed by being pulled back. And then it's just, we've been waiting for it for so long. So like people are kind of like, can we just see the damn movie already? I understand that there's criticism from some people of like, it's not what everybody said it was going to be. And I'm like, no, it's not. Because it's a sequel, weirdly. Yeah. But it's a sequel in a way where you never have to have seen the original to get what's going on here. They explain everything you could need. Like, there are moments that you will get to appreciate even more if you've seen the original Mm -hmm. because they're throwing nods to it. But there's so much invested in the story. And I think what's most amazing about this movie is, no, it's not perfect. And at times just goes into... You know, we've said a whole lot here, but we're just going to dive right back into a horror movie because it's a horror movie and you're supposed to eat some popcorn with this. Like, it's not all going to be symbolism and signifying. But holy shit, Nia DaCosta. She did an amazing job. It's just so well done. And I just I loved so much of it. I I'm just like this. is It's gorgeous. It's so well performed. I, I just I it was so good. It's beautifully unsettling. And from the very first moment, you are thrown the fuck off. Yeah, they they do a thing with the opening that is meant to make you go, huh? 
and it's on part it's it's great so if you've seen it you know what we're talking about and if you haven't it, you're gonna be uncomfortable from like the get-go but it's worth it it's so worth it it's, it's so really great and they did things that as they were happening i was like they're doing this and i didn't care because i liked it so much i was like yes it's great and it's just great it was really fun uh, we actually got to see that and it was it. It's one of those horror films that I want to see with other people in the theater. And we actually were fortunate enough that we there were a fair amount of people in the theater when we saw uh, we're still pretty, pretty well distanced masks. It's great. So that made it really enjoyable. It's awesome. Gets me hyped for Halloween kills. Yeah, we're excited and love seeing the inventiveness and like a director is like, oh, yeah, you're going to blow everybody out of the fucking water with everything you do. I just, I can't wait to see what else she does. It's going to be great. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.